last week in our series in the book of Romans, we considered what it meant to live under grace, that union with Christ changes our relationship with sin and how we relate to God. After all, union with Christ means we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And Paul's big statement on the first half of chapter 6 is, remember who you are. You are now united with Christ under grace and dead to sin and to alive to God. And today, as we finish the second half of chapter 6, Paul's big statement comes at, from another angle. Instead of focusing on who you are, though that's an element of today's passage as well, uh, the main emphasis is remember whose you are. Uh, you are slaves of Christ unto righteousness, and this is an aspect of Christian identity and is a focal point for our passage tonight. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 15 to 23. Uh, I will read our passage, and we'll ask our Lord to bless our time this evening. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, uh, reading from the English Standard Version. What then? Are we to sin because we are, no, or we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Let's open with a word of prayer. Holy Father, you are the light in a world of darkness. By your grace and power, you have rescued us from the darkness into marvelous light. And you are our all in all. Help us to worship you with the best of our portions, both in mind, heart, and spirit. Uh, teach us the kind of superabounding grace that we have received that gushes forth in joyful obedience. Teach us the old past that we might know what is good and lovely and pleasing to you. And not just that we would know it, but that we would also walk in it. Enlighten our stubborn hearts to the wonderment of what true freedom is. Lay bare our hearts and our lives where dissonance exists between sound doctrine and sound living. And help us to see that following Jesus is better. That it's gloriously better to take you at your word you have bought us at a price. Give us the proper view of sanctification in a world of moral insanity, where even those who profess to love you 
do what is right in their own eyes in the name of freedom and reveal the holes in our holiness that need to be addressed so that our lives will be redressed by the sanctifying power of your word and spirit. We need you, so help us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's important to clarify misunderstandings. A mistranslation or mistaken word can have dire consequences. Take, for example, me trying to pronounce words in Japanese. Just a few months ago, I somehow was under the impression that the Japanese dish that I was making and cooking from this random recipe website was pronounced a certain way. I thought I was pronouncing it correctly. But when my housemate cooked the very same exact dish one evening, I was like, mmm, nikujima. What happened afterwards was my housemate bursting out in uncontrolled laughter. I asked him what was so funny, and I soon found out why. Apparently, I've been telling others that the dish I was making and eating was called meat island, not meat stew, which would have been properly pronounced nikujaga, or I still probably butchered it, if I pronounced it properly and used the right word. <clears throat> While this pronunciation and cultural faux pas was on the lighter side and didn't lead to any severe consequences. Imagine a president speaking at a critical diplomatic event with a translator who wrongly translated what was spoken, which then escalates the hostility between those two nations. Or imagine the miscommunication that leads to wrong coordinates for a targeted missile, which then leads to an unintentional war, where life and death is at stake. Clarity is important to prevent misunderstandings because people have a tendency to come to the wrong conclusion. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing in our text this evening. He knows that wrong assumptions and conclusions concerning the nature of grace can adversely impact how believers live with their new identity in Christ. To explore this misunderstanding, we'll be looking at the following key idea if you're following along in your notes— that as Christians, we live under the reality that God owns us and is worthy of wholehearted obedience. And we'll be looking at three motivations for obedience in our passage tonight. The first motivation is that we have a new master, point one, a new master. Uh, verse 15 begins with, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul begins this section, much like last week, with another question. Some people like to think this is a hypothetical question, a, a theological postulate, a quandary for single seminary students who spend half their lives in the library basement scouring dusty books for answers to questions people in the modern church don't really even care about. That may or may not have been me, no comment. But realize Paul is making a pivotal clarification. Rhetorical questions are instructive. Paul preemptively anticipates and corrects wrong views about the grace of God. Why? Because Paul knows that believers are susceptible to wrong conclusions concerning this superabounding grace. He knows good news and a good thing like salvation offered freely as a gift can easily turn to cheap grace, that it can be abused, that views about grace can be distorted and lead to disordered living that's displeasing to God knowing that things could spiral out of control among the community of believers in Rome, 
He eagerly clarifies so that believers may continually be edified and mature in their faith. And the prevailing question is this. Does salvation by grace alone give me and you a license to sin and to brush off obedience to God as something only maybe more serious Christians do? Maybe it's what they, those super disciples, concern themselves with. Because that seems to be the implication or the conclusion since God is so gracious and we're saved by faith alone. But if that's the message that's coming across to you tonight, or that that's what you're under the impression about what Christianity is all about, may I suggest a critical aspect of faith in Christ and salvation by grace has been lost in translation. Paul says in verse 15, we are not under law but under grace. Uh, Just think about that for a second. As believers, we are not under the law but under grace. There is truth behind that statement, After all, it's assumed in this rhetorical question. But the reality is people will take this truth, uh, they they will run with it, and people will come out or come out with uh, all sorts of conclusions and and they just speak their mind about what they think it means. They might say, oh, well, God changes from the Old Testament to the New, right? Some might even say things like, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and, and all these rules and stuff. But God in the New Testament, because of Christ, is a God of love and grace. I don't need to be concerned with the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of obedience. Just two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to travel and spend a brief amount of time in Boston. I had an interesting encounter and conversation when I was waiting for the next train to arrive at Harvard Square subway station in Cambridge. A gentleman approached me asking if I would spare him a minute to hear about his story of great need. Um, He needed money, uh, food. As he begins to tell me of his needs, I notice he's definitely trying to get on my good side, uh, hopefully so I would trust him more. He wants me to look upon him favorably. He's looking for points of connection, saying things to maybe lighten the mood, help me to connect with him, like, hey man, don't get angry at me and fight me, all right? Like Bruce Lee. Uh, The next few things he said got interesting. He says, Hey, man, thanks for listening to me and helping me out. I believe in karma. You believe in karma, right? Anyone who helps me out, I'll help them out. I got their back. I never forget. I tell him I don't believe in karma. I'm a Christian. So he says, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, me too. Me and God are tight like that. And if that didn't leave me a bit skeptical, four stops later, we get off the train and continue talking, right? I don't want to just leave him hanging. I'll have a conversation with him, help him out. As we continue to walk, he wants to reassure me that he's not on the streets asking for money for bad or immoral reasons. He's not like all those other guys who are panhandling to buy drugs, alcohol, or cigarettes. And so as we walk and talk on the sidewalk, there's, there's this old gentleman in, 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 in the near distance sitting on his wheelchair in front of what appears to be an apartment complex he lives at. He's smoking on the sidewalk in front of the apartment complex. Pretty normal stuff in my book. But the panhandler quickly tells me he's not like that guy over there begging for money so he can get some cigarettes. And as we are just about to walk past the guy on, the wheel ch- uh, on his wheelchair who's just minding his own business, the panhandler confronts the guy and says, hey, why are you out here begging for money to buy your cigarettes? The guy in the wheelchair, a bit surprised by the confrontation, responds, I'm not begging or asking anyone for money. I'm just out here to get some fresh air. The panhandler quickly realizes this is poor judgment and apologizes to the guy and continues to follow me. 
After that whole ordeal, I gently look over to him in a calm voice. Hey, why did you uh, judge him by assuming he's begging others for money to purchase cigarettes? Did you actually hear or see, see him make such a request? Uh, help me understand what you were thinking. He responds, what? I already apologized to him for, for the misunderstanding. I'm a Christian, remember? God has forgiven me. And shortly after the comment, he encourages me to illegally walk across a busy intersection with him, even though me and other pedestrians clearly do not have the right of way as indicated by the do not walk fla uh, light flashing. So tell me, what's the point of me telling you this story? It's a true story, by the way. Well, the issue is that those who truly understand grace don't minimize their sin or take it lightly just because they know they are forgiven and will be forgiven. Freedom in Christ is not a, a license to think nonchalantly about sin. Believers living under grace don't think lightly of their sin, and nor do they take obedience lightly. Grace humbles and heightens the awareness of our sin. Justification is not justification to continue in sin and go about living freely to do whatever is right in your own eyes. No. It doesn't make breaking God's law or when we violate or disobey God's clear instructions just because we're saved okay. Yet in the story of my encounter in Boston, there's something we can see in ourselves and how we can sometimes view our sin against God. When we fail to love, when we are quick to judge, when we take God's word lightly and think obedience is just a mere afterthought once you have been saved. And if we're being honest, I don't think it's far too off from how we oftentimes rationalize or justify our own sin. We can fail to grasp and what it means to live under grace. And in so doing so, we abuse grace. We abuse grace by our flippant attitude towards our sin. And we begin to act and think like this. Well, if I'm truly under grace, do I really need to say, take the sin of my life that seriously? Can't I continue in, in maybe some vices? I enjoyed before, keep some of them secret, or if I'm truly forgiven of my sins, both past, present, and future, by the grace of God, and I've already been justified, then, then I, do I really need to fight sin in my life? Can't I embrace the way of life God has saved me of, uh, but not maybe go all the way? But Paul answers these questions. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 15, he answers, by no means. In the Bible, this is the most emphatic, uh, the strongest way to express disapproval and disagreement in the original Greek language. It's the highest, ex most extreme form of negation. It would be similar to saying, absolutely not. No way, Jose. That idea is utterly preposterous. You couldn't be more off base than that. Get that kind of thinking out of here. You see, Paul's concern is that we minimize the severity of sin and disobedience as merely being inconsequential. He knows all too well how newly justified believers may put the cart before the horse and be overly eager to, to pull out their get-out-of-hell card quickly whenever they mess up. Too excited to wave and show off their freedom in Christ, which then admits one into the shores of heaven. And so when Paul says, by no means... He's essentially pumping the brakes and saying, no, 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 hold up just a second. But the looming question is, why? Why not continue in sin? And the answer is picked up in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one 
whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. This happens because we must misunderstand our identity with Christ. We don't grasp and comprehend what it means to to live under grace because we don't grasp the reality that we are actually now slaves to Christ. Slaves of Christ. The word slave courses through this entire passage. In fact, it's used a total of eight times over our verses this evening. And it's repeated over and over to lean in and press, uh, press on and sound the drum on this truth that our relationship with God has fundamentally changed in a way that carries on in every day, every day of our lives, in all areas. And it all has to do with an analogy of slavery that Paul happens to use in connection with this Christian life we live. Calling someone a slave to describe their relationship with God perhaps strikes some of you as being odd, right? Because we don't really grasp how anyone can see themselves as being or wanting to be considered a slave. But this is where the original context of Greco-Roman culture helps. In first century Rome, slavery was actually common practice. Uh, People became slaves mainly one of two ways. One, they were slaves by way of being prisoners of war, or they were children born of those who were captive as prisoners of war. Second, a second group of, of people that became slaves were those who had voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. Uh, They would sell themselves into slavery because at that time it was a way to pay off debt whereby they could be financially better off afterwards. And after paying off debt as a slave, you would be free from living under your master and have a more stable life to climb socially since you are freed slaves uh, who can then become Roman citizens uh, and given the opportunity to become uh, that. It's a type of slavery where one voluntarily places himself under, submits himself under a master to do his will and bidding. So whether a slave was one temporarily or permanently for their entire lives, the slave was owned, though. Can't escape that fact. A slave didn't just do whatever he or she chose to do in life. After all, his or her master had bought that slave at a price. The slave is then bound to obey his or her master. A slave submits completely to the will of their master, and being a slave meant total obedience and allegiance to that master. And so Paul is using this cultural understanding of selling oneself under slavery to highlight the relationship between slave and master. But why? To make the point that believers are to live as slaves of God unto righteousness. Believers now have a a choice to not sin, for sin no longer has power over that believer who has been justified, who has been given a new heart, who now has the ability to obey God. So when a Christian habitually and willingly sins, they are putting themselves under the power of sin, that formerly slavery which they belong. They are failing to live out who they truly are as new creatures in Christ. They are turning back to their sinful way of life and patterns which they initially sought to abandon when they first repented, which means to turn away and turn towards God, and when they placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What you hand yourself over to is what you give yourself to, and you're submitting yourself under that power. You end up becoming a slave to that person or thing. You cannot serve two masters. The glaring principle for us to understand now 
that we are in union with Christ is this. You belong to whom you obey. And this concept is very similar to maybe something you've heard about with regards to Christian and worship. You become what you behold. Here we belong and place ourselves under the power of that which we obey, either of sin or of righteousness, doing what is right before the eyes of God. So how we respond to God in obedience or disobedience shows who we are putting ourselves under as our master. It's either the power of sin or the power of God leading to obedience. And this vivid analogy of slavery highlights the importance of the choices you and me make as believers. Every day matters for you. Every choice matters. And these verses serve as a catalyst to examine your lives for areas that you are not putting under slavery to righteousness. For Christ is your new master. So praxis, who are you putting yourselves under and subjecting yourselves to as your master? Are you listening and obeying the voices of sin in your old flesh? Are you giving into temptation by turning back to your old way of life in these specific areas that you can think of, even though you are now justified and have a new master? We reveal where we are by what we do, and your actions reveal your actual spiritual condition. The Bible makes it clear that, you, that who you serve, who you choose to obey, reviews, or, sorry, reveals who owns you. And that impacts everything, including your future. It's an appropriate warning to set us straight in this passage. Yet for the believer, it's also a fact that you are no longer slaves of sin. So we can live with certainty, even as we pause to examine our lives. Paul doesn't leave us pondering our spiritual state and genuine conversion with uncertainty. He clarifies that slavery to sin is all in the past for you if you are in Christ. In other words, we not only have a better master, we're on a radical path in life. A totally different trajectory, divergent from our past. And that's our second motivation this evening if you're following along in your outline. A radical path starting in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Paul begins with joyous thanksgiving to God. Nothing could be more appropriate. It's easy to overlook statements like this without giving it much thought. But we must ask the question, why thanksgiving? The answer is in the text. We were once slaves of Christ in the past, but that's not the case anymore because of what God did. If you are a Christian, being slaves of sin is your past. It's episode one. It's volume one of your life story. But now you've been radically changed, and now it's volume two, episode two of your life story that God is writing for you, your story of redemption. And at the heart of what Paul is getting at is this. A Christian is someone who has gone through a great change, a radical transformation, And the reason why this change has taken place is none other than than God working and and saving purposes in your life. Notice Paul's not praising Christians for what they have done, but thanks God for what God has done in their lives. It was God that rescued slaves who were shackled by sin and from the dominion of sin. It was God who delivered those who were under the slavery of sin. There's no place for boasting or patting yourself on the back. God is behind it because God has orchestrated it. How did God work to rescue us from slavery? 
Continuing in verse 17, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. The teaching which we were committed to are truths of the gospel, right? Fundamental truths about the cross of Jesus Christ and what happened when he died and his blood was poured out on the cross. And we believe he did that as a substitute for our sins, right? These are standard truths we have heard and we become obedient to in our response at our conversion. At the time we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, at the time we acknowledged our own sinfulness and our need for a Lord and Savior. Though it is a work of grace in us, it is also the first fruit of obedience in our hearts during our conversion. And what was the result What came out of having a new, regenerated heart which led to our conversion when we turned from our sin and turned to Christ? Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is a Christian paradox, isn't it? We are freed from sin, yet have become slaves of righteousness. But the truth is, the shackles and authority of sin have that had power over us, has been demolished. We have been emancipated and rescued. Yet we have been placed and transferred under Christ as slaves of righteousness. Paul continues in verse 19, I am speaking, speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. So Paul's explaining why he has been using this analogy of slavery. Why? Because it can be difficult to understand or for us to grasp how we relate to God as slaves. So he provides this analogy to help us tease out the connection, to to help us understand and clarify our relationship with God. He acknowledges the shortcoming of all analogies and illustrations, right? Let alone that of slavery. Nevertheless, his use of slavery is positive and appropriate because it helps clarify our position and relationship with Christ. Slavery isn't the only analogy in the Bible that describes our relationship with God. In fact, elsewhere, Scripture talks about us being sons and daughters, or how we are co-heirs with Christ, how we're called prodigals. Uh, But that's Paul's point. Speaking in human terms, an analogy isn't meant to be comprehensive or descriptive of everything. It's just one facet that's looked at from a specific angle. So slavery isn't the only way we relate to God in Christ, but it's still crucial and biblical, and biblical. And it's an aspect that me and you have to come to grips with. Because the tendency is for us to cherry pick and gravitate towards the parts of the Bibles and truths we, well, that appeals to us. While rejecting equally important aspects of what it means to follow after Jesus and clear things to avoid. Because you can't have faith without repentance, an ongoing repentance. And in the case here, you can't continue to live as if you're a slave to sin if you are now in Christ. Why? Because verse 19 continues, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This verse is all about contrasts and comparing the past with the present as well as with the future. Before you became a Christian and were justified, you gave your body and heart to lawlessness, to impure living, living in rebellion against God. 
And that sort of slavery is in the past now that you're, you have a new master, Jesus Christ, who desires you to live righteously. In other words, the path of slavery to sin is over. The train tracks of your life have radically switched over to a new track and direction. You have a new master whose desire and will for you is different from your former way of life. So reflect the commitment to live in submission to the one who bought you at such a great price. And redeemed you from your cruel and harsh master. Sin, which only leads you to more sin and destruction. Who will drive you to death. You're aware of your past path. But now you are on the genuine path of salvation. Growing in righteousness that leads to sanctification. This is the radical path of every genuine believer. Of one who has been justified and now lives under grace. Theologian um, F.F. Bruce once said, those who have been justified are now being sanctified. Those who have no experience of present sanctification have no reason to suppose they have been justified. The lie of the devil, the gospel according to Satan says this, God just wants you to be happy. You're free to do whatever you want if God, since God forgives you. Just like in the garden when he deceived Adam and Eve and brought my, mankind down into slavery and sin by suggesting, did God really say, it's okay, just this one time, God will forgive you. You don't know what you're missing out on. And this is the lie that many professing believers operate under in their own self-justification to continue to coddle their sin as if they're pets to be cared for rather than monsters to be slayed. One of the most pernicious errors in the modern postmodern evangelical church is this misunderstanding of what it means to be born again. And what do I mean by that? Well, they might rightly and quickly point out, oh, well, Roman Catholics, they got it wrong. Faith plus works leads to justification. Yet many of these modern evangelical teachers and churches preach an equally damning message that's equally toxic and fatal. That faith in Christ leads to justification minus works, minus obedience. That is, you can be justified by faith and have absolutely no change in your life. That you can bear no fruit, that you don't have to obey God's word, that, you, that how you live after conversion doesn't really matter. Yet have absolute confidence and assurance that you have been saved. They're quick to speak words, once saved, always saved. And even though while that's technically true, it's not without qualification. And today among and within many churches today, there are people who believe and live out this scandalous lie. It's one of the greatest forms of deception in churches today. You see, our obedience to Christ and his word contributes absolutely nothing to our justification, but yet they are absolutely indispensable. Obedience does not merit your justification, but obedience is absolutely necessary for it is the evidence, it is a proof of your justification. You can't just have Jesus as your savior like a blanket insurance policy and not have Jesus as your Lord and master. And if we understand this rightly, we understand the joy and privilege of trusting and obeying Christ every day. For he is not like that cruel and harsh master that sin is that leads us into death. He's a good and gracious king. When I was in high school and first got my driving permit, me and my friends got into the whole import car scene culture. You may have heard the term rice rocket thrown out there. 
which is sort of a derogatory slang term for uh, four-cylinder cars that have all the appearances of being fast because of the many stickers that it has, as well as a, a giant wing spoiler to give it the, uh, the idea that this car has so much power under the hood, you know, uh, this giant wing is needed to, keep, uh, to, to provide more downforce to keep it in control and on the ground. While this is a bit of an embarrassing overshare, I was that fast and furious wannabe guy. My first car was a 94 Toyota Camry handed down to me by my parents. And boy, oh boy, did I rice that thing up, even though it was nowhere close to being a 2JZ engine's Toyota Supra. I put some blue-tinted halogen lights on it and even bought a chrome exhaust tip that was very shiny. I bought this squash-scented air freshener because that's what all the Honda and uh, Toyota bros were doing. But guess what? Nothing changed under the hood that actually increased my horsepower or performance. They were all superficial accessories and mods that had no bearing on the reality of the car's performance. And so I would go about driving that Camry under the illusion that I was fast. I was it was radically changed, right? I'm not running stock. But guess what? It was still a slow family sedan. There's no, there was no reality of it being a radically changed car that was now fast. Similarly, we may add Jesus and some aspects of Christianity and church in our lives like a giant wing spoiler added to the trunk of a car, or we may add certain parts of the faith that we like uh, certain Bible passages that we'll listen to or agree with, like a chrome exhaust tip, as we go about our lives under the banner that you're a Christian, you're a legit Christian. But if obedience to Christ and submitting to his word is not in the hood of your heart and on your mind, what makes you think mere appearances has changed the reality of your situation? A facade is not the real deal. When Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, the notion of being born again is radical. It's a supernatural act of the Spirit that changes a person thereon afterwards. It's not just nicety for feel-good sentimental reasons. The Holy Spirit actually still dwells in you if you are in Christ. So getting back to what Paul is saying, the idea that you can be justified and go about living your own life without any radical change from the inside out is to live a lie a foolish pipe dream. We have the law of Christ. We have God's written, complete revelation of what he expects of us and demands of us in terms of our worship and how to worship him rightly in all areas of our lives. We have God's principles, his precepts of how to live a life set apart for him. So when Jesus says, if you so much as look upon someone with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart, it means every time you indulge in your lust and given temptations, you, you've actually sinned, right? It's probably a bigger deal than you're probably rationalizing in your mind. The Christian life is about radical and actual change. There's a divergent path between how you were living before Christ as slaves to sin to the path you are now to live now that you are slaves to Christ. Verse 19 contains the only imperative in this passage. It's a command from your king and master, and it's not optional. Living according to who you are in Christ isn't an optional thing. 
It's not an extra credit assignment or some additional thing you do on the side. You can't have that kind of attitude. Like, oh, well, I'll do God a favor later in life by offering my heart's affection and worship down the line. But I, I want to take care of some other things first in my life. The focus is on now, present right now, today. Your body, your mind, your soul as a slave to Christ by doing what is right and pleasing in his eyes. Growing in holiness isn't for tomorrow when you, or when you feel like it. Growing in godliness takes place now, steps right now. Take up the wearying but necessary battle against indwelling sin in your old flesh. Not later. Not after you achieve your dreams or fulfill your bucket list. Fill your mind with the word and truth dailies. And guys, I'm talking to you too. Yes, that's right. To all you boys to men, becoming men in practice. If you have time to do your dailies in games like Genshin Impact or scroll through your daily bagels on dating apps, read manga, read your daily stock market news and charts, then you certainly have time to do your dailies in God's word and prayer. Show me a man who is lenient about what he looks at or indulges in when no one is looking, and I'll show you a selfish man who lacks self-control. Show me a man who is loose with his tongue and tears down others and then just plays it off as just a joke. Well, it's no big deal. And I'll show you a man who communicates like an immature spiritual infant. Show me a man that eagerly confesses and seeks accountability and the help of others to fight against sin. And I'll show you a man who pursues righteousness because he knows he's a slave of Christ. Show me a man who doesn't want to push the envelope with what he can get away with without it being considered sin. Get as close to the line as possible with his Christian liberty by no means. And I'll show you a man who sees himself as a slave of Christ, who genuinely seeks to be set apart for God. Beloved, living righteously begins with building habits that will fuel your quest for godliness. As you fill yourself with the truth, fellowship around the truth, draw near to God in prayer with the truth, you will be sanctified with the truth, by the truth. The truth is we will never reach perfection in this life, but that does not mean giving up even if we stumble or fall. We continue to press on by the strength of God's Spirit in us to pursue what is lovely, what is pleasing to God. We don't cease to do good, uh, good towards others and continue, uh, or discontinue praying uh, unceasingly. Hiding under the, the veil of everything being okay when things are not okay in your life ends now. You're a slave to righteousness, a slave to King Jesus. Bring your pain, bring your suffering, your sins to God. Share and seek encouragement and others to support and help you grow in areas you know you need growing in. One of the greatest burdens and perhaps concerns that I, as one of the under-shepherds here in Praxis, is that we have not that we've grown numerically, but that we lose sight of what this young adult community is all about. It's great to make friends. It's great to be welcomed by friendly people who generally smile, have a positive attitude in life, who love Christ. They seem happy and interested in, in getting to know who you are and caring for you. Maybe they have the same interests and hobbies as you as well. I'm not trying to be a church curmudgeon here, okay? At least I hope not. We do welcome newcomers, visitors, and anyone who comes through those doors. But while I do hope that we would remain and continue to grow in this area as a community, in terms of finding a place where they belong, my primary hope and prayer is that 
we will be on the same page when it comes to the authority of God's word in our lives and a mutual understanding that one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is that we might encourage each other to live obediently, obediently to Christ. That every area of our lives would have wholehearted devotion and worship to God. Whether it's our struggles with job, career, discontentment, suffering, fighting sin and asking others for accountability. That we would hold fast to God's word and seek to live under Christ as our master. His word is the authoritative word for our lives, which means we must hold every thought captive, indeed captive, to Christ. That we will be men and women of the book. If we are to grow as a community of faith that follows after Jesus, we must realize part of following after Jesus does entail growing in thoughtfulness in how we live and living intentionally under the desire to obey Christ in all things not a compartmentalized life where we only share and reveal maybe a brighter picture than, than reality in terms of what maybe what some of you might be struggling with. We should be asking questions like, how do I fail to, to love or continue to, or, or continue to harbor anger towards others without confessing and reconciling? We deal with those kind of things. How do I forgive those who are unloving and have wronged me as many times as it takes because that has, that's how Christ has forgiven me? May we not be characterized as a community that, that waves the banner of freedom in Christ as a guise to live however you want, as if your decisions, your actions don't matter, like they don't hurt or affect others either. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom to treat others as less important than yourselves. When the outside world or visitors look at the assembled or scattered church comprised of Christians, they obviously see sinners. But that shouldn't be all that they see. They should see sinners who, whose lives are being radically transformed by the gospel. They should see Christian young adults make decisions not just on impulse, feelings, and emotions, but they would consider what might be pleasing to their master, Jesus Christ. That they would see a community of people who truly seek to do the will of God as revealed in his word. They, would, they should see people who take Christ's command to love one another and their neighbor seriously. Uh, the type of radical friendship, hospitality, care that cannot be explained other than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that unity that they have in that. And people are joyfully doing these things because they know they are on a different path from the rest of the world. They serve a new and better master that desires them to live righteously in a wicked and perverse generation filled with hate, pride, and immorality. The gospel isn't Jesus accepts you the way you are. It's that he accepts you despite who you are, yet doesn't leave you to be the way you were. He justifies you and sanctifies you. Sanctification, this word here, means progressive obedience progressive change in the image and likeness of Christ. That is the path for all who have become justified, and it's the path of believers to pursue daily under the grace of God as slaves to righteousness. So we have a new Master King Jesus. That's our first point. We're on a radically new path towards greater Christ-likeness in our obedience unto righteousness. That's our second point. And now our third motivation. We have a better outcome. Better outcome. Verses 20 to 23. 
Paul's exhortation to present your life wholeheartedly as a slave to righteousness is given for this very reason. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. In the past, prior to conversion and being justified, me and you were slaves to sin. At the same time in the past, we did have a certain type of freedom. But it wasn't a good freedom. It was a freedom from living righteously. This means that as long as we were in our hopeless state of being slaves of sin, we were unable to actually live righteously. Why? Because we were free and distant from the power and influence of the Spirit of God to live in a way that would be pleasing to him. We lacked the spiritual equipment, the, the heart to do that because we had hearts of stone rather than a heart of flesh. This also describes all non-believers who are currently under the slavery of sin. They don't have a compulsion to do what is right. They are in the same state of Adam after the fall in the garden, unable to not sin. But if you've been born again, you're no longer under that category. You're able to not sin. And let that sink in again. Sin has no power over you, nor should you obey its siren call. Your slavery to sin is all in the past now. That's your pre-Christian, pre-Jesus following days. Why would you willingly and voluntarily return to that type of subjection, that sort of slavery, to a worse way of life with an objectively poorer outcome, which leads to death? And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death? Yeah, you had freedom for doing what was right in your own eyes under the slavery of sin, but what, what actual good came out of that as you think upon the past of who you were and now think upon who you are and who you're becoming? He's asking us and compelling us to think through that for ourselves, to think upon your own testimony. There is a positive and good type of shame that helps us to put in perspective the path and what outcome would have been had we continued to pursue sinful passions with an all-in attitude. The fruit from living under the slavery of sin is that we now experience a shame from that former way of life. Is that not how we feel every time we continue to sin? When all is said and done, what are we left with after we sin? Shame pain, devastation to relationships, devastation to others, devastation to ourselves. And since that's the case, slavery to righteousness is much better than slavery to sin. And nowhere do we see this more clearly in the outcome of those who remained under the slavery of sin apart from Christ. How much more fortunate are those who are justified by faith and living under grace Death is the only result of slavery to sin. Eternal death. Separation from fellowship with God in hell and being eternally subject to the wrath of God. But that's not the case for you this evening, Christian. You have a better outcome. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We have a better outcome because what God has done in the past He has transferred us from our former master, which was sin, and placed us under a new master. We learned that already. But the focus is the fact that the fruit we now have 
or from the fruit we now get has the outcome of growing in righteousness that leads to eternal life. It's that stark antithesis to slavery to God. Living righteously under a new and better master isn't in vain. That's, that's the point he's making. It's not in vain what, 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 you're, what you're pursuing, pursuing righteousness. The outcome truly is better with Jesus under his yoke. It's not just to make you feel better. It's a reality for those of you who persevere in righteousness. That's why Paul's encouragement comes to a climax in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's no surprise that this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. You probably memorized it if you grew up in church. It's famous for good reason. Charles Spurgeon, at one point, even had this to say about it. A Christian proverb, a golden sentence, a divine statement of truth, worthy to be written across the sky. Here you have both the essence of the gospel and a statement of that misery from which the gospel delivers all who believe. Death is what we earn as sinners. It's what we deserve. It's something warranted on the basis of what we have done. It's the right and proper payment for our sin. So when we commit sins against a holy and just God, we incur this right liability. And we are liable to the just punishment of a righteous and holy God. But as Romans 1.32 says, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Apart from Christ, we stand before God as convicted criminals because of our sin. And so death is not just an arbitrary sentence. It is actually an appropriate consequence for you. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve to be regarded as exemplary human beings that God would be impressed with us. You'd be self-deceived at worst and lacking self-awareness at best to think God would look upon you and say, wow, look at you. You're kind of a big deal, huh? Sure, you're pretty good. Why don't you join me in heaven? If, if that's what you're thinking God is going to say. But eternal life is different. It's clearly better, the better outcome because instead of death and misery, you get something different. It's not a wage. It's received as a gracious gift. And this powerful gift isn't just for the future. It leads to transformation in the present. In fact, the power of grace must lead to a transformed life. And this is why we must persevere in holiness in order to experience eternal life. Things have forever changed if you are in Jesus Christ. You are a new creation under a new master. The power of grace leads you to your transformed life. That's the principle. The gospel message changes sinners into gospel people whose mind, body, will, spirit is offered in the service of the one who saved you, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, if we are in Christ, going back to our old way of life under the slavery of sin has no benefit. It's clearly an inferior way of life. It only brought shame, and it still brings shame when you look back on your previous life before Jesus. It only brought death to you, too. But now you are in Christ. You have a better master marked by grace when you fail. Yet we continue to pursue holiness, not just out of duty as slaves to a master, but as slaves to King Jesus, a king who loves us, 
who demonstrated his love for us to the uttermost. How do we know? Because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, paid a great and infinite price to purchase unworthy sinners such as ourselves. That's why, as the hymn goes, I'm always encouraged to hear the words, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life up from the dead. The gospel, the good news of Jesus has changed us and will continue to change us until we are finally at home with him. He's worthy to be your master. He's worthy of you living radically in obedience to him. And he's, he's worthy to receive all glory, honor, praise, blessing. For it is he who grants us eternal life, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we appreciate the grace that you abundantly shower upon us, Lord. But yet, at the same time, we sometimes fail to, to remember that we were bought at a price. That though we are freed in Christ, we are slaves to Christ, slaves of Christ. That we might live holy lives pleasing to you, Lord. That we might take our sin seriously. And that we might pursue greater and greater obedience to your will day by day, Lord. And that we might actually know your will and how we might obey you through our pursuit of you, through word, prayer, and fellowship. Pray that you will continue to just stir our hearts tonight and just even the conversations afterwards that we will continually examine our own lives, Lord, to see where we are still yielding um, to the slavery and power of sin in our lives, Lord, rather than the spirit in our, in our disobedience. We need your spirit every day, and we need your help to, to grow in these things, Lord, for without you, we could do nothing. So help us, and help us to continue to grow as worshipers of you and as followers of the way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.